Welcome to the DMH Stallard Employment Group podcast. My name is Abigail Maino. I'm a partner in the employment team here at DMH Stallard. And this is the third in a three-part podcast on globalisation in the world of work. In our first session, we looked at inward uh, recruitment to the UK. In our second, we looked at uh, short-term or more ad hoc uh, remote working arrangements. And in this final session, we're going to be looking at uh, the, some of the issues and potential benefits associated with engaging employees on a more permanent basis to work abroad. Um, this topic has become increasingly more important for employers as we become more connected from a technology perspective, post-COVID um, employee employers embracing remote working to unprecedented scales and employees really driving, um, wanting to uh, relocate and work on a more global perspective so in this podcast we're looking at what are the benefits what businesses need to consider uh, from a legal tax or immigration angle and we've got a fantastic panel uh, with me today to discuss some of these issues uh, we have Adam Williams head of the immigration team at DMH Stallard since 2008 Adam has been assisting UK employers to get the most out of UK immigration system and he also regularly advises international businesses on the immigration aspects of inward investment to the UK. Simon Bellum is also joining us. Simon is a partner in the employment team at DMH Stallard. He spent the last 35 years supporting a variety of clients, including those with overseas operations. And finally, we are delighted to be joined by Sanjuk Duray, Employment Tax Solutions and Global Mobility Manager at Menzies LLP. Sanjukta advises clients on employment tax matters relating to globally mobile employees. She has a wealth of experience in the tax and payroll aspects and implications of cross-border working. So, Sanjukta, looking at it from a tax perspective, is it possible to have a sense generally of how long you would need to be in a location before you trigger some of the sticky tax issues and presence? Um, it isn't really. I mean, we I know we talked about the more sort of temporary moves and the ad hoc working holiday type uh, moves in the second podcast of the series. But even for those arrangements, there really is no de minimis below which uh, it's safe to say that there's absolutely nothing for the employee or the employer to consider. Therefore, for permanent uh, and long term or more structured moves, these sticky issues relating to immigration, tax, etc., would come into play from the get-go, and one would ideally have to start planning and start thinking long before these arrangements are actually finalized. Mm. Now, there is a common belief that if somebody is spending less than 183 days in a country, that individual or the employer will have nothing to worry about from a tax perspective. Mm. Uh, this can be a very dangerous assumption to make and, and is mm. often incorrectly made. Uh, by people. I mean, you would have to meet quite a few conditions for that so-called 183-day rule to apply in the first place. And even if it did apply, um, it may not completely um, exempt the employer from uh, carrying out their sort of reporting obligations overseas. Um, yeah. So, I mean, even and that might be the case, even though there might ultimately be no tax for the employee or the employer to pay. Now, having yeah. said that, the implications will vary depending on the facts and circumstances of sort of every individual scenario and overseas jurisdiction concerned. And every country, I mean, realistically, at a practical level, they will apply 
rules um, differently. So we'd have to bear that in mind when we are planning for such moves. Mm. Yeah, just chip, just chipping in there, Abby. Uh, yeah. uh, so, uh, Totally agree with Sandra. That 183 day thing is a is a myth we need to dispel because I see that in Sandra must see that a lot. Yes. Um, so if there's a, there's one of the takeaways from this discussion that it's important not to get convince yourself that there are these bright lines of separation and that every scenario is going to just fall within that. that yeah, rule. absolutely. Because really invariably not the case. Yeah, and I think the 183 days correct me if I'm wrong, um, is when you start to potentially lose your tax residency in the UK rather than having tax obligations in another country. Leanne Sanjuk is going to see, she's, you're going to correct me on that? Yes, not, not really. Well, 183 day rule. You're trying so hard to agree with that, Lee Sanjuk. <laughs> <laughs> how, can, how can I find a way to say yes? You can you can disagree, Sanjukta. This is what this is what the podcast's for. Well, broadly, yes and no. I mean, it is to do with losing and gaining tax residency, but it's not quite simple as that because you know we're mm. talking about double tax treaties, and you know if you spend more than 183 days in a country, you're definitely tax resident. But but you could there could be other implications even if you did not. So mm. I mean, yeah, I mean it's. It, it can get quite um, confusing and if mm. you rely on that 183 days, it can be quite dangerous. Yeah. So the, the, the key takeaway is dispel that myth that, that there's yeah. any magic, I mean, there's any magic to the number of 183 days. Yeah. yeah. So, it's going in room 101. Yeah, absolutely. 183 and 101. Yeah. Um, so, so Simon, what, what about employment rights? So local employment uh, law rights applying what's the position on that uh, and the choice of of law is is there a particular length of time you could spend in a, in a country that would make that more or less important or determinative in terms of of whether uk law continues or ceases to apply and local law takes over okay well um the, the question of which employment laws apply, I mean, it's complicated is the first thing to say. And there's a mixture, really, of things which happen automatically and things which you've got a level of control over and where you can use the contract to, to choose the, uh, the law that will apply. So if, if we take a quite common example of somebody who's been UK based, already employed by an organisation, but is going to go and work overseas. I think there's two things to to be thinking about that might happen automatically. One is you've got to be thinking about, okay, they're currently a UK employee. They've got UK employment rights. They're going to work overseas. What happens to those UK employment rights? Will they retain them or will they lose them? And the other thing you need to be thinking about is, right, they're going to work overseas. Will they acquire any of the employment law rights that exists in in the country where they're going to be located so if if we take the first question well what happens to the uk employment rights where somebody uh, goes to work over abroad goes to work overseas um the, it, this is where it does get complicated the the courts have always struggled and uh, chopped and changed in terms of working out well what level of association with the UK has to continue to exist for the employee to retain their UK employment law rights. And maybe the picture is best evidenced by a recent case where the Employment Appeal Tribunal came to the view that 
an employee who was UK based who went to work overseas in Australia uh, purely because they were able to work remotely. So they were doing it for their own convenience. The Employment Appeal Tribunal concluded that they retained their UK right to bring a claim of unfair dismissal, notwithstanding that they were working on the other side of the world. Um, and they identified a range of factors that might be looked at to determine whether or not the connection with the UK remained sufficiently for the employee to, to retain their UK employment rights. So they were saying, you look at where the employee is, is based, any choice of uh, jurisdiction that the parties make, and I'll go on to talk about that in a, a bit more detail. Um, what was said to the employee about their employment rights, um, where the employee was managed from, uh, where the employee's home was, where they were paid and in what currency, where did they pay tax, where was the employer registered, and also whether there's any connection between the employer and the UK state, you know, some government or public body. So you can see that there are a mixture of factors that are going to be taken into mm. account and in working out whether the individual retains their UK uh, rights. Um, but there is particularly that scenario where people simply are going to work overseas because it suits them to work remotely. Um, there's, there's high risk that they will retain their UK employment rights. Mm. And then mm. the next question is, right, what about an employee goes overseas? Will they acquire rights that apply in the country where they're going to be working? And the probability is that they will um, because there are, it's well established that there are mandatory employment rights which an employee will have regardless of what the parties try to do in terms of writing the, the, the contract and excluding those rights that they will have um, which apply in the local country. And you know, the importance of that is maybe best demonstrated rather than looking at all the local employment rights in all the various countries in the world. If you just look at the mandatory laws in the UK that apply to people working here uh, who, who are previously based overseas, all of the rights under the Employment Rights Act, such as right to redundancy payment, right to pay unfair dismissal, all the rights under the maternity and uh, discrimination, discrimination legislation are those mandatory rights. So if you transfer that position to an overseas country, there may well be a host of employment law rights that are relevant in that locality that will mm. apply to the individual who's been posted overseas. So those are kind of things that you've got limited control over in the sense of they're going to apply depending upon the, the circumstances of the employment and that list of factors that I was talking mm. about. Then the other big question is, okay, well, what about if you write something in the contract of employment um, that says UK em employment law will continue to apply or some other jurisdiction, or you say that the uh, any disputes going to be heard in the UK legal system? They can be of importance. We can see that they can be taken into account in deciding what jurisdiction is going to apply. Um, and 
the courts will have quite a high regard to the choice of law, choice of jurisdiction that the parties record in the contract of employment, but it mm. will always be subject to those mandatory rights which will always apply. Mm. So there is there's limited discretion that employers have. Um, you asked the question whether how long they spend working overseas is going to be relevant. Yes, it is. It's going to, it's going to be one of the questions, one of the issues that will be looked at by the court in working out whether there's a close connection with the UK so that UK employment law rights still apply or whether there's um, a, a permanency with the uh, with the overseas um, posting such that mm. the UK employment rights don't apply and uh, other mandatory rules do apply. Mm, yes. The thing is with this, Abby, is, um, sorry to cut across you. Uh, you, you get what that can mean, Simon, I'm sure you, you've seen this, is you, you can end up looking at the situation that, and you can take advice to the nth degree and try to get clever legal opinions and ways to try and manage it, but sometimes an employer has to look and understand both sets of rights and laws and accept that in theory they could be battling on two different sets mm. of grounds um and in a different way and to a, in a different timeline to sanjukta's considerations around tax payroll etc you're looking at risk management you know to even if it's in a loose sense you know the longer the person is there the greater broadly speaking the likelihood of the local rights applying so okay what are those right be comfortable as an employer that will let it go on that long then and that that probability keeps mm. going up um one regime sure simon and Sanjukta, you've probably been on the edge of seeing these, this advice for unemployment rights, may actually be a lot more expensive than another in terms of an exit, for example. If you think of, uh, if I think off the top of my head of Italy as compared to UK with redundancy type, yeah, Sanjukta's nodding, you can look and go, goodness me, these are not even comparable. Um, mm. It's not like, oh, well, you know, whichever forum they choose, it will broadly end up the same. It won't. And in fact, can't even be sure they'll only choose one. You might be battling both. <laughs> Someone mm, might yeah, try and, you know. Oh, really sorry, good sorry. point, Adam. So th that's a terrific point that sometimes the employee can get the best of both worlds. So mm. you, you, you put in the contract of employment that UK employment law will apply. Um, but the mandatory rules in Italy, in that example, also apply. And the employee gets the best of both worlds. Um, they get the benefit of the mandatory rules, which might be more beneficial in Italy. Um, but they'll also be able to say, well, for other purposes, that jurisdiction clause applies so that I'm entitled to mm. bring a claim for some other em employment related right or some other right under the contract in the UK. Yeah, yeah. I, it, I think it goes back to, to something we've said, you know, even in the first of these series about, about planning and, and just getting some of the corners of the pitch in terms of what the potential exposure yeah. in yeah. the worst case, you know, potentially might be for the business before agreeing to any anything that might potentially be long term and, and tip an, a business into those risk levels on, on all fronts just getting a handle yeah. on what the exposure might be um, and if and if the business is comfortable with that from a you know from a theoretical perspective whether or not it ends up transpiring yeah that's absolutely right I think and Sanjay Wolf have seen this in as well in in the sense that for a business how can you do your sort of cost benefit analysis mm. if you don't have a sense of what the potential worst case risk scenario is this move mm. in or in ordinary circumstances has got to make sense for the organization in the sense of it's it works it adds value 
and ideally you want to weigh that up don't you against the downside mm. risk well you could go in blindly and just say we don't know what the risks are if it all goes wrong but you can't then do a reasoned assessment of well sanjukta says this is the tax implication in the worst case scenario and simon says this is the employment and adam's saying these are the visa issues let's hold those up in the light against the positives of this move which could be as simple as we just really, really value and need and want this person and, and they mm. want to make the move, or it could be, no, strategically, we're pushing the move and we need to say, do we or don't we? But how can you do that if you don't know what the broad, as yeah. you put it, corners of the picture? Yeah, so we've had some um, views on some of the tax considerations, some of the legal implications. But Adam, is there any distinction between sort of more flexible short-term working arrangements for people visiting a country as opposed to longer-term moves from an immigration perspective? Yeah, okay. Well, the answer is uh, almost certainly yes. As most of our answers will be um, premised with, it depends on the territory you're looking at. You know, answers to lots of your questions will start with that. But subject to that point, you know, it depends in terms of precise requirements of the country you're looking at. Yeah, almost certainly, because, um, you know, short-term trips might have been done on an understanding that though the activities the individual is going to do work-wise are permitted of visitors in that location. If you, if you looked at the inbound UK scenario, do a lot of that, there's actually quite a broad set of business visitor permitted activities. Um, to an extent, some people might be quite surprised with examples of what you can do. I mean, they're, they're, they're specific but they, they have a range of different activities. But when you get to a longer, more permanent stay, it's probably fair to say it's unlikely in most jurisdictions that the visitor rules are going to allow longer term, we've used this term sticky, haven't we, more, more local-based activity. I mean, if you took the UK example, again, you can't take up employment or self-employment and be doing a job from the UK. Um, it, you still have to be essentially some someone that would be recognised as visiting. So mm. that, that's the key thing. You have to think about nationality of the individual within that context, because broadly speaking, if they're going to be based in Spain and they're Spanish, then you, you shouldn't have an issue. But but outside of that, you've got this question of immigration control. You know, what with if the visitor rules, we're moving away from visitor. Well, what are the permissions that are needed? How do we ensure that they and we don't get on the wrong end of immigration control here? So um, it could mean, if you took the UK model as an example, um, and there'll be a different version or, or approach in other countries, but almost but very, very commonly, you will need a business registered and set up in the UK um, mm. and it having established itself in order for that to happen yeah. through a work yeah. visa. So query whether that's the case in this country that you're now looking to move someone to. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Sanjukta, presumably that has um, a knock-on effect on, on potential tax reporting if you've got to create a presence in that jurisdiction um, and other obligations. Yes, these seem to be quite closely linked. So what might be needed to facilitate immigration may then trigger employer reporting obligations from a tax perspective. So, for instance, um, what I was going to say earlier was that in a normal sort of permanent move, or if you're hiring somebody permanently overseas, you would expect that the employer would have a payroll withholding uh, obligation to calculate uh, income tax, social security, what have you. Uh, but if that foreign employer did not have a presence in the overseas jurisdiction, sometimes they could be exempt from operating a payroll 
for income tax purposes and and they would they would still have to sort of do something to meet the social security obligations but sometimes those can be moved on to the employee uh, themselves but if you're now creating an entity or creating a presence to meet immigration requirements the employer will not be able to get itself exempted from that payroll withholding reporting operating mm -hmm. obligation and there will of course be other things to consider what the corporate tax reporting corporate tax paying obligations so, so so yeah one would lead to another and and it mm -hmm. kind of yeah yeah, there's a bit of a, a, a snowball effect, isn't there? Exactly. Yeah. On on the issue of social security, um, I understand in the past there was a need to get certificates regarding which country system would apply from a social security perspective. Do employers still need them, and 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 what's the risk of not having them, um, uh, and the employer's liability if they don't have those certificates in respect of both countries? So for moves that are completely permanent, uh, the certificates of coverage or the A ones are not relevant because if somebody is moving somewhere permanently and that's where they're going to live and work from, then it's that jurisdiction social security regime that will apply. So you don't need a certificate to say that that person's then tied to their home country or previous home country. But for shorter, even though they are structured moves, shorter moves like secondments, the two or three year assignments, then yes, they're still very much needed. I mean, they would typically allow an employee to remain covered under their home social security regime without having to also contribute into the host. Um, so if you, uh, I mean, if you, if you did not have a certificate of coverage when you should have, then, then you, although you might still be contributing into the home system, you might find, you will find that the employer and the employee both has a need to con also make contributions in that overseas regime. So you'd have a situation where there's a, as a double contribution because you're paying somewhere where you shouldn't, but, but you haven't paid where you actually should. So, okay. so yeah, it's still very does that, much. Does that, yeah, does that still apply in, in the context of doing a business trip as well? Um, um, again, it's, it's never, there is no de minimis. They don't say mm -hmm. that you don't need a certificate if you stay below um, X number of days. So we typically tend to advise that you should get certificate. I mean, it's it's how the overseas authorities might want to enforce it. Uh, I mean, mm. post Brexit, I would expect there to be a bit more scrutiny if you're going to the European countries. Um, they might insist on a certificate for even one day's business travel. So it's advisable yeah. to have one. I mean, it's not always possible because business trips by their very nature can be quite ad hoc and you don't know. But you can yeah. backdate it. Uh, applications. Uh, yeah, I, 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 get, I guess it might come down to the, the employer taking a view on, on the chances of, exactly. of the authorities yeah. picking up on an issue for a, for a very short business and, trip. Uh, yes, and also sometimes if you're, I mean, going away from business to more sort of um, longer term moves, uh, I have seen some overseas authorities request a certificate at the immigration application stage. So not sure why they would need mm. it, but they insist, yeah. please produce a certificate of coverage for your immigration application to be filed. Yeah, really, really yeah. interesting. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's probably an indirect way of trying to sense check that this is a genuine mm -hmm. business managed kind of con controlled trip rather than it's uh, because the immigration authorities are most concerned about allowing people over the borders who are coming for different reasons than they say. 
And so that would be one way of saying, yeah, well, all right, you're telling me that you're employed by this organisation, you're coming on a business trip. This is one way of you backing that up. Mm-hmm. They'll have an A1, won't they? Of course, the employer might not because they go, well, what's an A1? We've, we never even thought about it. We didn't think that if it was under 183 days, there it is again. <laughs> you had to have one, you know? Um, yeah. You know. So, Simon, uh, so linking back to what you mentioned earlier about um, the contract taking you so far, but local mandatory laws potentially creeping in regardless of, of what you might have having a contract is the contract important at all in all of this um can it is it possible to ensure that only um english law applies um and you only end up in english courts as an employer i mean i think the answer to that is probably no based on what you said said earlier so you know do employers is there any value in employers looking at their contracts when someone's moving moving abroad Yes, there is still a value. Um, you know, you've summarised it nicely there. That you you can't be certain that uh, by stipulating in the contract of employment that UK law will apply, and that the UK courts will have jurisdiction to determine any disputes. You can't be certain that that's going to hold good. But it will be one of the things that's taken into account um, when. It, the courts are looking at the issue of whether or not there's sufficient proximity to the UK. Um, so the, the the choice of law um, that's made by the parties and which is recorded in the contract of employment, it remains important. But I think the, the underlying message is that it doesn't matter how many times you write that it's UK employment law that's going to apply or it's the UK courts that are going to determine any issues, there will be mandatory rules uh, in all countries um, abroad um, that will continue to apply. Um, and that's very, very clear. Um, it's worth making the point that there are two issues to address in the contract, and they are separate issues. One is the question of, okay, which law is going to apply? That's the governing law point. And the second separate issue is which courts will have jurisdiction. So those are two distinct issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they both need to be addressed in the contract. Yeah. And is that true of immigration rules as well, Adam? Is the contract important um, at all? Um, or And can it be used to avoid local requirements applying? Uh, it's broadly true. It's broadly the, the same, um, really, in that, that it, it can be valuable, but in a slightly different way, I think. I mean, it's, it's correct to say that you can't use the contract to control and force a different immigration requirement or outcome than, than, that, than that which applies. Um, so there's no point thinking that as an employer, well, well, we'll say that this is a visit and therefore US immigration authorities won't be interested if the person's going in and doing things that the US authorities are going to go, that is not a visit. So <laughs> um, please come with me. Uh, so you know you can't use it in that sense but 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 quite often it's important in the sense of different immigration routes will require the individual the business to demonstrate that the arrangement under which this is taking place and it has to be if you look at the uk scenario it may have to be a very specific type of arrangement in how it's been set up so you you do have to have that element and the contract is usually an important part of maybe more than one document mm-hmm. that has to has to set that out okay so we might might have um might be the death of the 183-day myth, but not the death of the, the contract. 
Yeah, yeah. What, what we're saying. Let's don't not <laughs> accidentally throw that one in room 101A, Simon. <laughs> Absolutely. I think there's one other point that's worth making in relation to whether or not you exercise a, a choice of law within a contract. And that is that whilst we're very clear that there are mandatory rules that will apply where an employer is uh, working overseas, those mandatory rules might cover areas such as I've described what happens uh, on termination, unfair dismissal rights that exist abroad, redundancy rights, holiday rights that exist abroad. But we know that the contract of employment covers a whole host of other things. And there might be other areas which aren't governed by the mandatory rules that apply locally. And a typical one might be something like restrictive covenants. So what you could have is a situation where, okay, that choice of jurisdiction and choice of law clause within the contract doesn't disapply the local mandatory laws in relation to areas such as notice, redundancy, et cetera, et cetera. But where there are no mandatory rules, for example, in relation to issues such as the application of restrictive covenants, then the choice of law clause would be relevant and useful. So mm. that's another good reason yeah. for using the, the, the choice of jurisdiction, choice of law clause. Yeah, yeah. really good point. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to ask a question, really, Simon, where, you know, we're talking about mandatory laws and then the UK might have similar laws, but they might be more or less favourable than the overseas ones. Do you have a choice which mandatory law? Well, I suppose you don't. If, if, it's, if they're overseas, those uh, rules will apply. But if the UK laws are more favourable for the same set of mandatory laws, say, uh, parental leave or what have you does the employee then have a choice to say well i'm going to make use of the uh the, em uh, the employment laws in the uk because they're more sort of favorable or more general yes yeah that that, that that's the risk that mm. the uh the employee gets the best of both worlds okay. so that they mm. can rely on the, what the contract says for it so supposing the employee is wanting to rely on uk laws and the contract says uk uh, law governs this contract uh, then they can say all oh, right i'm going to rely on that clause mm. yeah please pay me the the more beneficial arrangement in, in that applies in the uk yeah yeah certainly a lot to think about from a from a choice of law perspective um sanjukta probably just sort of now we're bringing this to a close this might be a a, a silly question obvious question um but is there a significant difference from a tax perspective um, when somebody who might have been working for you in the UK, let's say, wants to move to France on a more permanent basis um, versus someone the business might recruit locally in France to do to do a role? Is, is there any particular difference in terms of, of tax obligations there? Uh, well, the difference would be in that the person that is moving from the UK will have a UK connection. That is, you know, they will have been a UK employee on a UK employment contract subject to UK PAYE tax and national insurance. So when they move, they, they and we are assuming that they remain an employee of the UK company, they will have a trailing um, UK PAYE obligation. Um, so, you know, the, the employer, at least in the short term, will have to carry on deducting 
uh, tax, national insurance, and so on. But but then also there'll be a, a, an obligation in the overseas jurisdiction to sort of run a shadow or a secondary payroll to deal with local laws. Um, mm. Whereas if you're and there's a little bit of sorting out to do in the in the interim or at least in the short term. Whereas if you're hiring somebody who's never been to the UK um, but is going to you know say France is going to live and work from France, then it's 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 cleaner from UK perspective there's no connections to the UK and you don't have to worry as much about uh, what happens to UK tax because there's nothing to worry about mm. you wouldn't have any UK tax you only have to worry about the French aspects okay there might be some uh, you know for accounting purposes or reporting purposes you might still need to show the employee going through your books in the UK UK company but you know you don't have the PAY issues and the double tax issues um, yeah. uh, to, to, to deal with it, it, again in the short term yeah i, think I, would, yeah. I would chime in there abby as well that um it can have a bearing on the immigration position having I was just about to say that Adam. with colleagues yeah, yeah and I, I, anecdotally i recall because i don't try and become an expert myself in all these different jurisdictions but we looked at this for a move to france and it was a different immigration route and visa option if you were transferring someone as opposed to locally hired mm. so that's a really good example of how you've got your advisors looking at these different factors and Jukta and I would need to put our heads together and work out with the client you know yeah. are there options here on either side and you know which one's going to win the day in terms of driving you down a particular route where you've got more than one way of doing it yeah um, absolutely I mean it, it's really clear from from our conversation so far that there's a real layering up of of the three different areas in terms of the legal immigration and tax that that all have to be looked at and um considered in the round as to as you say adam which is which is going to be the driver um for an employer making a decision um i think probably just to close it'd be useful um for uh the listeners if if we could get one takeaway from you all in respect of um oh. tax payroll local labor rights immigration in this context if, if there was one takeaway from this session for, for our listeners what would it be so i'm going to well, pick on i'm going to pick on adam first uh, get out of the way get out <laughs> yeah. of the way fine fine um i think it would be uh don't forget about immigration first of all uh, <laughs> it, it, it will almost certainly arise as an issue unless the person is a national of the country they're going to be in and as a takeaway at the very least, make sure you've got a sense of the visitor uh, entitlements and most importantly, limitations. Where is the boundary line between something that is accepted as a visit activity and one that steps you over into, no, 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 this is something you need proper permission for. Okay, very good, very good. Sanjukta, um, I'm going to echo and say, I'm going to echo what Adam says. So don't forget, for people tend not to forget about tax, but they tend to think about it quite late in the day mm -hmm. but but you know permanent moves typically don't happen overnight so in theory employers and employees both should have plenty of time to consider all the risks and and come up with a plan or solution that works for both the individual as the as well as the employer so yes do step back and take time to think through the relevant issues and assess needs what needs to be done before making an informed decision so plan Excellent. ahead really plan ahead and last but by no means least simon your key takeaway? Thanks, Abby. I would say local employment law rights. You know, don't assume that just because you're saying in the contract that UK law applies that uh, you've avoided uh, overseas rights. 
it's highly likely that there'll be some mandatory laws, significant number of them that will apply uh, locally. And you need to do your research. You either need to obtain local legal advice um, and uh, you know, we, we can always put people in touch with overseas lawyers or alternatively, you need to look pretty hard on Google if you can do it yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, with, a, with a big, big disclaimer on, on the Google advice. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That was that was a really, really interesting conversation. Thanks. Thanks to all of you for, for taking part. I'm sure, sure our Thank listeners you. will have lots to take away. Um, so this concludes our, uh, the last in our series of three podcasts on globalisation in the world of work. I hope that everyone has found it useful. Do uh, follow us and get our latest updates and um, next podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, um, Podbean, Spotify, and Apple Music. So thank you very much for listening. <laughs>